So good afternoon, folks. Welcome to a special event this afternoon. And I am Dr. Marla Luncheon. You know me from Everyday Lessons, but I'm here this afternoon with Reverend Dr. Claire Nelson. Dr. Nelson is a futurist. She is also an engineer by profession. She is the head of the Institute of Caribbean Studies. Through the Institute of Caribbean Studies, we've been able to get a proclamation to recognize June as National Caribbean American Heritage Month. Dr. Nelson is also a White House champion of change. She was named in the Obama administration. And today we're gonna talk a little bit about um, UN World Environment Day and what we can do from our seats in the pew, really. So not putting it all on leaders as we always tend to do for everything that we talk about. You know, We talk about leadership and how leaders can um, bring change and be instrumental in bringing change and so on. Dr. Nelson is a big fan of starting where you are to create that change and, you know, having influence there. So she'll, she'll talk a little bit about that. But I know we're going to start today with a sermon, um, well, an excerpt from a sermon that sort of situates us where we are today on this world environmentally. So you can go ahead with that, Dr. Nelson, and then, then we'll start. So our scripture today is from the Hebrew Bible, Genesis 1.28, a Revised Standard Version. And it reads, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. We are in a time of crisis brought home to us by the reality of more than a year in the grip of a global pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. We're also here in the aftermath of the global racial uprising of last year, brought about by the martyrdom of George Floyd. And yes, I call him a martyr because his horrific death has created a global awakening to the injustice of the current world order in which racial hierarchy still holds sway. We're hurling towards a global environmental disaster that is in our capacity to address, but our gangster proclivities and gluttony for all things hold us in thrall. So that despite the evidence seen in the last 10 years or so of hurricanes and floods and hailstorms, five storms, tornadoes, earthquakes, and such, we seem to view these images as entertainment from the nightly news, suitable for water cooler conversations. But we, as a community of faith keepers, seem to be unable to come to grips with our responsibilities to this creation we call home. So might this COVID pandemic or covid for short not be seen as a call for us to make a change, to pivot to a new covenant with our earth and for the cosmos? I see this covid as a period of enforced slowdown as an opportunity provided by Pachamama, Mother Earth, as a time of holy transition like the period between the crucifixion of Jesus the Christ and the resurrection. We have a shared vision of planter resurrection as articulated by Agenda 2030, the 17 sustainable development goals and 169 targets for an inclusive, sustainable future. But somehow, we as a community of faith keepers seem to hold these at a distance. It's as if caring for the planet is only for the environmentalists. 
I hear the pronouncements, but I don't see much practice to change current laws and norms. And I observe a deadly silence on the courage rush to conquer space with the same mindset that has brought us this place here on earth. The cosmos do not belong to us. We belong to the cosmos. We have a responsibility to care for God's creation, if only to save ourselves. And by we, I'm talking about all of us in this global community of faith keepers, as I call us the sun, the church, the Sabbath, the we, the Buddhist, the Hindu, Yoruba, Indigenous, Sikh, Jain, Baha'i, Jewish, Muslim, and Christian faith, and any other faith that I have left out of a long list that you may ascribe yourself to. Surely, we can find common ground in the belief that all life is sacred. The pronouncements and conferences on climate change or on environmental justice here and there seem not to have found their way into our pews and benches because I have not seen the upswing of global consciousness needed for transformational change. We are enmeshed in a worldview dominated by a Judeo-Christian interpretation of what it means to be a society with economic and social laws and regulations that have taken us out of communion with God's creation. There's a gap between that which we say we want and that which we're doing. We've found ourselves in this place, I think, due to the belief in this idea of separation from the Judeo-Christian story of us being thrown out of the Garden of Eden. And so, unlike faiths, where there has been no separation between us and nature, the earth. But perhaps we might revisit the scripture and our interpretation of it to recover what might have been meant in that story. All right. All right. Thank you for that excerpt. So welcome, Dr. Nelson. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Those are fighting words. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. It seems like quite a charge. So, I mean, it, it predates this year's um, UN Environmental Day. And yes, that is I, last year. Yes, and I can say that nothing has changed. Really. <laughs> yes. And, you know, what a reason why I'm really... Um, uh, the sense of panic, um, sort of a desperation, and really I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here on Intentional Talk with the Network, because I'm saying, okay, if all I can do is be on this network and talk about it, who knows the right person might listen and we can move the needle of thought forward, because the, the, the theme for this year is only one planet, mm -hmm. only one Earth, and the more I get engaged in the space community, uh, and, you know, get excited about space settlement on the moon and space settlement on, her, on Mars and all we're going to do to terraform Mars and what energy we have to create and, you know, with fusion or fission and all this drama that I may sometimes, you know, get excited about. I'm saying, but wait a minute, we're going to be traveling hundreds of thousands of miles, having to deal with radiation, having to deal with weightlessness that can damage the human body mm -hmm. to create something that we already have, right? Mm -hmm. What kind of madness is this? Mm -hmm. So how, how does it affect, or no, maybe it's the reverse. How do the sustainable development goals tie into what we really should be doing? And I say should, because obviously if we've had no change or if we're not seeing the sort of change that you had envisioned, what are we missing with the sustainable development goals? I think the sustainable development goals, let's say the sustainable goal number 16, 
which is probably the one that talks about peace and justice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the faith community, those in the faith community that are more on, let's say, on the activist side, that may be involved in refugee resettlement, or some of them are involved in feeding the hungry and the homeless, tend to do it from the point of view of, and I'm speaking mostly about those organized Christian faith or organized Muslims, mm-hmm. like Red Crescent or whatever, Red Cross, Red Crescent, those kinds of people, are doing it more from the point of view of we're going to minister to those in need, mm-hmm. but they're not in a way addressing the fundamental interpretation of the scriptures that basically carry their faith to change the processes that lead to the crisis in the first place. Mm-hmm. And what I had said in that sermon was that we're living in an economic paradigm that is structured on a Judeo-Christian lens. So for example, if, if the global economic paradigm had been structured on the Islamic lens, then we'd be following Islamic banking laws, for example, which means no interest in those things. But we're coming from a Judeo-Christian lens, which means banks in the world have interest rates and all these other fees. And so the whole structure globally, whether you are Buddhist or Hindu or Jew or whatever, it's a Judeo-Christian, and most of Christian and Jewish in this case, not all Abrahamic faiths, just the Jew and Christian itself that have driven the economic paradigms which have created how we operate as an economy, right? Mm-hmm. And so the metrics we use do not include metrics around environment. And my, my thesis is that because they, we have been taught in our memetic code go out and multiply and have dominion over creation. Mm-hmm. We have interpreted dominion over creation in a way that has been uh, detrimental. And so in that particular sermon, I, I was looking for and found uh, some interpretations that kind of looked at the Hebrew words of its time. They tried to all uh, and see, okay, what could a Hebrew text have meant? Mm-hmm. And they have found different words that uh, that if used in the context of the sentence could have been used to in, interpret as dominion with, as opposed to dominion over. And by that I mean, the leader, which is, let's say, the punitive leader versus the leader, which is the servant mm-hmm. um, leader. So that word dominion should have been interpreted to mean dominion in a way that you are a servant leader to protect, to guide, to guard God's creation, not to consume, consume and corrupt God's creation. Mm-hmm. And I think that that fundamental teaching has not made its way into the way let's say seminarians are taught today. So they're still at the, the principle of, of, of let's say endorsing an economic consensual model with the spiritual underpinnings that it is our right to do so. Mm. And we really see that making its way up to the, the houses of, of um, what should I say, into places of law, because you see everything exactly. is, is really being driven by the capitalist system that we find ourselves under. You know, exactly. That is, is really, really interesting. Really interesting. So all of the engineering that we've been doing largely, I'm an engineer, so I can talk about it. All the engineering that we've been doing and our mind it is, let us subdue nature, not let us work with nature. 
right? Mm -hmm. So there's a new movement, for example, which is nature solutions to climate change. We go back and say, wait a minute, maybe we should have left those marshes where they were and work with the marshes to kind of filter the drainage as opposed to trying, we're gonna build these you know, fantastic drains, but we're creating imbalance elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So these are what is it, new ideas coming back into favor, but it's taking a long time. And my contention is that now that we have the Earth Covenant, for example, that the World Parliament of Religions is doing, but I'm still not meeting people who are asking, well, does your minister talk about climate change from a perspective of reinterpreting scripture? And most people I talk to say, no, they don't, right. this is not taught in their churches. So then, okay, if you are involved in a church, can you? then as a lay person, bring it forward on a day, using days like today, using International Forest Day or UN Ocean Day, whatever other days, we have so many days we can use mm -hmm. to sort of uh, educate and begin a, a conversation that will move us more quickly into towards the road of safety because we are really in a road of disaster right now. Mm -hmm. I, I just wanna read a tweet that I, I retweeted from the Caribbean's prime minister. Um, and she said, Today, the world celebrates World Environment Day, but for Barbados and other coastal nations, this is no time to celebrate. In a crisis, time is a luxury. In this climate crisis, time is a luxury we simply cannot afford. Global leaders, there is only one earth. We need to act now. And I was a Prime Minister Mia Mortley, Prime Minister of Barbados. I mean, we do call her the Caribbean's Prime Minister because we see she's the one acting on everything we need. But those two are fighting words saying that we need to act now. But the, the Caribbean really is not in a position to one, act on its own. And secondly, because the Caribbean is really comprised of smaller nations, you know, if we could band together, then it really does help getting every single voice. And as you're saying, if we start from the pew and not from the pulpit, then, you know, it, it, it really could be helpful. I don't know. I mean, for me, I hear you. So pew and pulpit really are one, right? And it means that those people who are environmentalists, the few that they are in the region, and they're not that many, should be the ones harassing them with the ministers to say, hey, mm -hmm. how come we don't preach about this? The fisher folk, the people who are concerned about food security, water security, people who are concerned about disaster, they should be one saying to their ministers, how come we don't preach about this? We should be asking for that because in the Caribbean, as you know, the faith community still has a lot of sway over people's mindset. Of course. And so if we were to have the Caribbean Council of Churches um, really say, you know, we're going to really adopt the Earth Charter, and I do go beyond the Earth Charter to talk about the need for a covenant with the cosmos because I'm worried about by the fact time we think about the space, it'll be too late. The musketeers and the buccaneers with the base of series of the buccaneers would have basically <laughs> taken off the space and also, you know, corrupted that too. Mm -hmm. So we, we don't really have time to sort of dither when it comes to educating more people to understand what's at stake in terms of human survival and human thrival. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I know there's a separate um, celebration for World Ocean Day, but I saw something this morning that is it's appropriate here, where it, it said that for every one degree that the ocean warms up, it means fish are struggling to breathe. And if fish are struggling to breathe, then they either migrate or die. And that's, that's, 
it seems harsh to put it that way, but it's the reality. So we find that fish are being, for, for fish who, larger fish, let's say predatory fish, who can actually survive with that one degree drop, they are able to feast on the smaller fish that can't survive. And so we would have a situation where the fish population is dwindling, and that is directly our food supply. It's not even directly related to it. It's, it's food, because we eat food. So now we're beginning to see um, situations where we are causing our food to um, disappear. Exactly. So how do we have a conversation um, as people of African descent, largely in the Caribbean region, we're here in America, people of African descent here in America, there's a conversation in the environmental justice movement, but I am not sure if I'm seeing the same thing that being translated into the pews in the American churches either. So when we talk about Black, black communities in the coastal um, um, communities or in rural America that really are like third world nations, right? Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't see the EGA movement, let's say being in bed with the ministers who hold sway over those people and the politicians who hold sway to really do the transformative work where the mindset is such that there's almost like the same way people just know that quote unquote, you know, you have, um, uh, 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 Easter Sunday, we should just know that we have a Sunday we, that we deal with environment and we have a three month program at the end of which there's some program for planting trees or going back to the farms or starting a farmer's market or something that ties us as communities at, at the border of risk to the reward of taking care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm saying. I would like to see more churches do. I want to see more black churches do that here in America. And I want to see more church in the Caribbean do the same thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Kian, I see you had a comment. Feel free to jump in. Oh, sure, sure. I just wanted to mention one thing. <laughs> OMG, which is Oceans Melting Greenland, which is a development created by Joshua Willis of uh, JPL here in Pasadena. Um, he created this organization. They basically monitor the movement and the melting of the polar ice caps, particularly in the northern hemisphere of the planet. And something that they have discovered is that as these, uh, this is just my my brief description of it. It's far more, it's far greater detailed than what I'm going to give you. But here's mm -hmm. just the main, one of the main, uh, one of the core operations is to monitor the melting of the ice caps. Now, the thing that happens with the melting of the polar ice caps, um, which I might as well mention that the polar ice caps, along with the forests of the world, manage and maintain the planet's climates. Mm -hmm. So you destabilize, you, you destabilize either and or both of those, you're done for. Those right. of you who can't live underground, you're done. Um, so uh, basically, back to the melting ice caps, what happens is that is fresh water that is melting. And so what happens is when it starts melting from the top, it kind of creates... A bit of a, a hole, kind of like if you continue to pour room temperature water on an ice cube, where that continuation of pouring happens, it creates a hole. Mm -hmm. So that creates a hole inside of the um, inside of the uh, iceberg. And what happens is that iceberg will eventually split apart, just like an ice cube would. Now, when that happens, you no longer have 
as it's melting, you no longer have solid water. You now have liquid water. So what ends up happening is that all of that water disperses and it starts, it can't go anywhere because this is a locked, a self-sustaining planet. So it, it continues, it, it spreads into salt water. Eventually it will spread into the salt water bodies. And what happens is when you do have those migrating fish who are salt water, salt water animals, they cannot live in fresh water. Fresh water cannot likely live in salt water. That's why we have those two bodies and both sea life that are adjusted for each, each body of water. So that mixture will absolutely kill off those who cannot live in it. So what you're, in, what you're basically doing is killing off sea life in both fresh and salt water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what, that is sort of a double negative that you didn't intend. You thought you were just uh, zapping oxygen out of the salt water when in fact fresh water is happening at the same time. This is a self-sustaining planet every single thing is part of the chain that keeps the entire fence linked and safe happy and pretty but when one link is broken Mm -hmm. the others start to break and then the others start to break and the others break so used and the more links that break the quicker the other links break so when we have these sort of unintended responses like the fresh water blending with the salt water not only that but you have the temperature differences certain sea life cannot live in certain temperatures Mm -hmm. so you have this it's basically a runaway train of destruction that no one intended or no one thought enough of in terms of when i say no one i mean the people that are creating these problems They didn't understand. They don't understand how the planet is self-sustaining in the first place, the entire function and engineering of it. So that, you know, now that they're creating these, these highly destructive industries and things, they're basically speeding up, creating and speeding up, not just climate change, but global destruction. And that's. But I I, I would, I would say that this issue about don't understand is really not true. I think that maybe in the early days we didn't understand. So let's say maybe a hundred years we didn't understand. Maybe eight years ago we didn't understand. Maybe 50 years ago we didn't understand. But certainly the last 20 to 30 years, there has been enough engineering studies that understand what we don't have is a will to move from oil and gas garrison that we are living in. And, and we see that even, because let's take Barbados, for example. Even as the Bible, the Spramings, they're saying all of this stuff is what I would say makes me quite irritated. They're drilling for oil. And why are you drilling for oil? You shouldn't even be drilling for oil. You should be saying to the world, we are not going to drill for oil, even though we know we have oil and gas reserves off the coastline. What we're going to call for is a a rationalization of uh, the climate finance we're asking for so that Barbados can more swiftly move to 80% renewable offshore and we need heavy investment in tidal and ocean thermal which are alternative sources so why are you drilling for oil if you are out there also screaming and saying we need to pay attention how is that helpful so there's a so there's a mindset that is missing because even though our prime ministers in the region are saying oh you know we just have climate change climate change climate change we need more finance I don't see them really 
aggressively preparing their engineering schools. I don't see the aggressive investment in the marine, uh, let's say the, the marine sciences and management relevant to what we need to properly manage the Caribbean Sea. And if you look at most HBCUs, for example, I, beside University of Maryland Eastern Shore, maybe I think Hampton, maybe those two. I don't know any other black schools that really have strong marine science or even baby um, marine science or atmospheric science programming to even prepare our community to be at the table when these factors and these tools and these techniques and these metrics are decided on. So, so all of these, let's say, inputs to an ecosystem shift that needs to happen is not happening. And the worst part is that our people are not primed emotionally and spiritually to even raise the alarm. So the average working class person, even the average educated person, unless they really follow these things in the black community, whether they be African immigrant, Caribbean immigrant, Native African-American here in America is not talking about climate change and is not having an alarmist history fit about it. It's only, quote unquote, the few EJ movement people that they are. Hence why I think in the same way that the church organized for the civil rights movement, the church ought to be organized to support the climate justice movement. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, and, and maybe what we are trying to do, maybe what the church is trying to do is to prepare people for life hereafter. And I'm just being devil's, devil's advocate here. No, because I mean, they must know that we have someplace to go when we die. So, I mean, you know, so they may, be, they may be hastening to that. I don't know. But, you know, if, if, it, is, if it is that we know, <laughs> but if it is that we understand, as Kiana said, this is a self-sustaining planet, and the theme is only one Earth, and we know this, we know this, then why are we moving in the wrong direction? It, I, I don't understand. I mean, I have more questions than answers, and I like questions. I love questions, but... If they're not leading us to anything, then, you know. Right. So the momentum was, so just like, let's say, let's use slavery. Because that's what, let's say, Black people in the West have in, in common, right? Mm -hmm. We understand that. We have lived it. It's part of our code. Slavery for many years was like a wheeling motion that nobody thought could ever stop, right? Perfect. Right. And this is why I believe Black people in the West especially, are the ones actually who are most prepared to take on the climate conversation and win. Because we know we have experience in, in serious social change mm. in ways that other people don't. Not, mm -hmm. not only that, we have experience that. in doing change with no power, except the power of our spiritual capital, the power of our mental intelligence and our moral uh, righteousness, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how do the, those of us who are, let's say, advocates and activists who are in the pews um, find a way to motivate and inculcate in our, as you say, let's prepare our congregation for life in the hereafter. Preach <laughs> 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 up. Let's say, well, while we're here, we still want to have the good life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Can I say, may I ask a question, I guess? Um, would it be reasonable to to even assert that maybe 
us black people around the world should look at some of our indigenous practices prior to the colonizing of the entire dry land should we look at some of those or some some of us somewhere have we have indigenous roots all over the world so should mm -hmm. we reach back to those because those were not disruptive to the natural they weren't disruptive to nature they were in line with nature so maybe it, it would that be something that we can look at some indigenous early practices pre-colonial i think there has been some movement um, certainly in some parts of well, indigenous and indigenous Africa, but certainly indigenous people in Latin America, there's been some looking at that. But I do believe there will be some, there would or could be some benefit, as you rightly say, in having some of these schools of agriculture, let's say in Africa, um, look back and say what used to happen before. Okay, we had slash and burn, we know more about the science now, but what is it that is good from the past we can take, marry with the science of today and come up with something new to take us forward? And that means, therefore, uh, we need to also have a mindset shift about respecting indigenous wisdom and knowledge, because Absolutely. so many people still have a colonialist mindset that nothing no good that we don't even though come from some pale face blue eyed person it don't have no sense and so we have to decolonize our mind and emancipate ourselves from mental slavery so mm. we can hear the yes. wisdom of our ancestral wisdom right yes. and, it, and note that in the same way we have certain NGOs traversing around the world, studying indigenous herbs, et cetera, et cetera, and then come back and giving, us, give, giving up back, it back to us as a vaccine or whatever. Yep. And we don't make the money out of it, right? In the same way that that has been happening, we need to now wake up to the reality. There are enough of us who have been educated in the West that have gone to the highest heights of pharmacology school and geology school and, and, and you know astronomy school, we have people in every single facet of endeavor that there is nuclear physics. We have all over the place. What we need to know is saying, what is it is going to take us to the next level? Where, as Marcus Garvey said, unless we create an African civilization, that is Pan-African, that is at the same level of moral, not just moral authority, because we're at the top of the moral authority heap, but at the same level of, of capital and military might, then we're not going to make it. Now, we're not on the top of the military might, and we probably will never get there. And do we really want to get there? Thank do we you. really want to use military might to be the way forward? Or can we, in this case, I'm going to be very controversial, can we go back to our indigenous religions now, right? Yes. Recognize that there is a lot of spiritual power in whether it's Shango or Vodun, and, and stop, let's say, uh, down whatever people who practice those religions and say, oh, they're going to go to hell, they're demon worshippers or whatever, and recognize that they might indeed have the power that we don't have to understand nature spirits and creation conversations and talk to trees and locks and animals to hear what they have to tell us to take us forward because we have lost the capacity to do so. Christianity oh has educated it out of us. Yep. Yep. You are my favorite person in the whole world right now. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. You know, don't be surprised if I show up at your doorstep and sit on a pillow, <laughs> sit on a pillow in front of you at your feet and just listen. 
I apologize for the intrusion. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I'm happy to hear you say that because sometimes a lot of people think I'm crazy, right? So I'm used to being like, feel like I'm pretty much quiet. Everybody thinks I'm crazy. So what? But we, but I keep on talking in the hope that maybe I saw the Kool Aid that Marcus Garvey gave, and I'm like, if Marcus Garvey could talk till he died, well, that's all I can do. God, I'm gonna talk till I die because that's what I can I'm do. I'm listening. <laughs> Kenny, I see your hand up. You had a question. Yeah, I don't know if I can follow all that, <laughs> but I did. I I did want to go back to uh, when Kiana brought up people don't know what they're doing and, and, and the doctor said that they know but they don't care well I have two words that that talk about that and that's manifest destiny you know there are certain people here that believe and like she said we have dominion over the earth they can do whatever they want it doesn't matter they can come if in you could speak up a little bit more it, I'm not hearing you clearly what there's a manifest destiny there are certain people in 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 this world particularly in this country who feel that they can do whatever they want this world this earth belongs to them and they can abuse, use it and abuse it, rape and pillage and do whatever they want because they, it belongs to them. And that's the issue is that they know, they know better, but they don't care. They don't care. You say, why are we continuing to draw drill for uh, fossil fuels? Because they believe they can keep drilling, keep drilling, keep polluting the air, and it doesn't matter. And they don't care. And that's the bottom line. They feel this is theirs and they can do what they want with it. You know, I was on a call with some aerospace people one day, and I was happy as a fly on the wall. Day. Most of the time, I'm on, I'm on a person who looks like me on these calls. And so there was a conversation about access to space, and everybody's hippity hopping about space elevators and, you know, shuttles that are going to move you back and forth between the planets. And then somebody says, yeah, because, you know, the rich people are going to want to escape when the Earth gets too crowded. They want to when I want to go and escape to Mars, I'm saying to myself, to, no, to the good life on Mars. And I'm saying, good life on Mars, there ain't no beach over there. <laughs> they, they ain't got no ski slope if you like the cold. They ain't got no mango. <laughs> they ain't got no fan fish and lobster. If there's if no there's mango no wine, If there's no, no pineapple, I'm not good. No pineapple. What good life are you trying to escape to? <laughs> so I said, maybe this is why I really have to make sure I really become a voice in the space fearing community. But look at not, not just access to space because we have the right to be in the conversation, but access to space so we can understand that really we need space and access to the knowledge of space and the knowledge of the regulations and the rules of how we're going to share space so that we ensure that we can save the earth. And so again, when you talk to a minister of the cloth about space, they look at you again like you're crazy. And I'm saying, don't you understand that we now have to also deal with the fact that most of us who think heaven is up in space, <laughs> and I'm one, of those, I'm one of those people who, even though I know better, I'm an interfaith metaphysical new thought Christian, quote unquote, even though I know better, my default position is that heaven is up in the sky, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I don't want nobody messing with my ability to see the stars because that is where heaven is. So if we're not having a conversation as these rules making as to how, who is going to get the right to mine the asteroid and to name the asteroid and to haul the asteroid away in case it's going to collide with the earth. I mean, all of these things which are being talked about now for the next 
40, 50, 60, 100 years in Earth, Earth history, yes, we won't be here. But my point is, if we're not talking about those things now, we again, as people of African descent, are going to be once again, the toast and the bones of the meals at the table in the future. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, and if we're not talking about it, then we're, we're part of the problem. Exactly. And that's how I feel, because we have to be concerned about our legacy, because if it's one thing that we're doing, we are leaving children. So we're leaving people behind to sort of clean up the mess that we did not even, one, we didn't create, and two, we didn't try to clean up. All of those parts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so it's- So, it's, I mean, on a talk show like this, International Talk Radio, I, I'm not sure how and why your listenership is, but certainly the fact you even have the name Intentional mm-hmm. Talk Radio, it's a very powerful um, name and I believe in the naming and claiming mm-hmm. um, rule of life that says, okay, the people on this platform have the intention to change the narrative. Mm-hmm. So we certainly should have an international talk show, radio, an EJ group or a climate group or something that even is on the first five people, hopefully eventually that five will become 15 and then the 15 will become you know, 85 and then the 85 will become 165. I'm saying we have to just persevere because that's what we can do. We may not have enough money to do more than that, but we certainly can do up an hour on a Sunday like we are today. And then we share it and say, maybe two percent. oh my God, I've been looking for someone like this to share these ideas with. I mean, I try to get many ministers to be on this call today. Some had a good excuse, like I have church service. Okay, good. One said, well, I don't know enough about the subject matter. And I'm saying like, you don't need to know about the subject matter to talk about talking about it. Because you preach, I'm sure, about creation. And you were not there. So the fact that you as a, and this is one of the, let's say, established churches, the Moravian church. So the fact that you as a Moravian church have not even received, let's say, an edict from your church hierarchy that says, this Sunday, you should be talking about climate. Mm-hmm. It's a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you propose we go about solving, or it might not be solving, solving might be strong. How do we start to have the conversations? What should we be talking about? I am trying to figure out who would be, let's say, a natural partner um, in terms of moving forward. One of the ideas I have had is um, in September when the UN has its Sustainable Development Goals meeting to see if, you know, here in DC, Washington DC area, if I could convene um, the Interfaith Council of Washington DC and convince them to have a view from the pews kind of a conversation where they invite ministers from regular churches, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially those that have big congregations of people who work on the hill or who work in these agencies or who work in these industry associations, right? Because they have power mm-hmm. and sort of have a conversation with me and then have like a call to action that says on this particular Sunday, we're going to have a days of faith or days of action where churches are going to be asked to preach on this subject matter, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe just one small thing, but maybe it's enough to at least get the appetite started for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I may, oh, sorry. 
No, go ahead. Uh, just maybe to that, to your point, uh, Dr. Nelson, I, Reverend Dr. Nelson, I'd like to maybe offer the idea that you spoke about earlier, which is, um, I think we both mentioned um, indigenous practices and sort of creating the, the proper verbiage and education for people to start to maybe step away from capitalism. Um, it's going to be painful for a lot of people, and the concept is completely bizarre, comes fully equipped with allergies that people have about <laughs> walking away from capitalism, um, for which there is no EpiPen. Um, so I'm wondering if maybe we should really start to talk to people about moving in that direction. Uh, and, and I don't know if we can talk to people about it. I would do it a different way. Okay. Let's say, for example, and <laughs> Amal and I are part of, I would say, let's use the word, an experiment kind of run, run off the rails, but I'm not giving up hope. We were trying to figure out how could we, as 10 people of Cabin Heritage, come together to do business in a new way. And we learned a lot from the press about what wasn't going to work because we end up having stupid arguments about stupid things, right? And so I don't consider this thing a failure because I learned something from the process, right? right? right. So it may not be the same 10 people go for it. Maybe, maybe with only five of us will go for it because we now know who thinks like us, right? Mm -hmm. And who is willing to argue and then come back to the table and not get discussed and walk away. Because at the end of the day, we have to test these quote unquote new models so that we can figure out what works for our social consciousness, our cultural consciousness and how we are. We are seeing now a rise, for example, in the food justice movement, where more people are thinking about creating food co-ops in food deserts, for example. That's a beginning. That's a very practical beginning. Mm -hmm. Maybe what we could also do, as those of us who live in urban areas, is identify if there's some Black farmer co-op, say, in Mississippi or Alabama, just like here in Washington, D.C., where we have um, community-supported agriculture. Can we, even though we're not living in that area, can we in some ways support those people who are doing, let's say, growing things that we like to eat and say, okay, let's try to see if we can support them so they can hold on to their land. Or if they will say, okay, let us have a kind of a partnership where it's okay, we want you to grow corn and we're going to get corn, uh, how many pounds of corn they sell it in our black, 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 black food co-ops in Washington, D.C. or Chicago or wherever. So as opposed to talk about it, I think we need to look for small pilots that we can, that are already maybe beginning to work mm -hmm. and see how we can help them expand because nothing beats winning like something that's already winning. Mm -hmm. We are mostly people who like to attach ourselves to successful things. Not, there are not many of us like Akiana or Dr. Mal or Kenny who will sit down on a Sunday and have a, a conversation to plot, right? <laughs> to plot and say, well, if I do something, we're fed up now. We're going to do something. That takes a different kind of personality, right? So if the four of us were to say, okay, what can we do? That might be the thing we will do. And so the next kind of special event, we might say, okay, let's do a food event. We're going to bring in all these black co-ops, right? Because we know what we want to accomplish. Let's bring the black co-ops and say, have a conversation about food security. All this talk about, oh, there's going to be a famine in Ukraine. We can say to ourselves, we're not going to be in no famine with the rest of the people. Eh? We're going to organize ourselves from now. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no reason why we should not, as a Black community, saying rather than sit around and wait for the famine like this with our hands folded, call the Black farmers and say, all right, 
what do we need to do to make sure when the famine happens, we're not starving? Because, you know, if when food gets to share out, we're going to be the last in the line. Mm -hmm. So what do we need to do? We have these black agriculture schools in Tuskegee or Jackson or Delaware or Maryland Eastern Shore. Are we having those conversations when we have all this empty farmland in America, all these black farmers who are struggling, and we're sitting up here walking into Whole Foods or wherever, right? And buying food and not even saying, let us put $10 into a farmer's pot so he can go quarter acre more of something for one more week. So that's a very practical thing, mm -hmm. which I think might actually work because people are hearing famine is coming, famine is coming. There's no reason why we can have a special event like this where it's okay, let's bring the food people to the table and have a conversation and let's see what can we do then, having had this conversation where we can say, okay, Let's find three black churches that will work with three food food corps to say, let's test an acre plot or a five acre plot in mm -hmm. Virginia, in Alabama, in Mississippi, and see what we can do. I think mm -hmm. that's, to me, that's doable. Okay, okay. And it, it, you're right, it may not actually take as much as we think it might take. Because if we talk to farmers, then they would tell us, Listen, $10 will go a long way in terms of buying seeds and whatever. And these may be inputs that they might not have had, you know, because they have the land, but there's nothing else to plant on it because they just can't stretch anymore. And we also need to look at, I saw something yesterday, I think, where they were cutting um, walnut trees in California just because one, the U.S., well, China is the world's top producer of walnuts, followed by the U.S. And... Um, and I think Australia might have been third. But anyway, point is this farm was, they were cutting down several acres of walnuts, just, and these were fully grown trees, just because the process of growing walnuts and then sending them out um, is, is counterproductive. No, it's very expensive because a container with goods going to, let's say, China, um, or coming from China, sorry cost $20,000 just in shipping, $20,500 in shipping. When you're sending um, walnuts in the other direction, what you're sending out is $3,500 worth of raw product. Now that shipping, add that shipping cost to it, and it's going to take 120 days on the sea. That is way too long for them to wait to make money. So they're cutting down those trees and they're going to plant tomatoes. So that was really an eye opener for me because they're like, listen, now we need to get Congress to do something because it's just this is just a straight money thing. And I'm like, well, I have learned that we orbit money. So I understand how it works. Right, Kiana? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and one other thing <laughs> to all of that. Um, I think something that is that's teachable is yes we have a bunch of black farmers here in California as well as there there's a bunch in the south as well but we also need to be teaching ourselves how to grow food we don't really don't have to walk in the vein of industry in order to eat the planet provides for exactly. you exactly before you even get here so learn how to grow an orange learn how to grow a walnut learn how to identify it we used to know this stuff this is the indigenous practices. These are the practices and understandings that I'm talking about. And in order to, to successfully do that, you kind of do have to walk away from capitalism because what you end up doing is you don't need to go buy it from someone. And, and quite frankly, money is looking really shaky right now. 
And it's going to continue to get a little shakier. Currency is changing. And are we going to be part of the elite class who knows the changes because we're the ones making the changes? No, we're not going to be. So we really need to, you can't eat a coin or Ethereum anyway. So you need to be able to go and create that orange that you can eat. Create that apple. I really think that every black person that has common sense and have a little bit of disposable income should be figuring out which one of your cousins or your friend cousin or your friend's second or third cousin have access to a piece of land somewhere and make sure yeah. they have the title to it and make sure that you help them figure out how to get water on it and then make sure you tell them, do any of your children want to go into farming? Because, you know, we're willing to help you, help them get started. If it's only even to go five chickens for the household, because at least if they're learning to go five chickens for the household, range free chickens and they can't even go enough to sell to you if there was really a famine quote unquote coming down the pike it won't take too long for them to scale up from five to 50 which mm-hmm. they can now sell to you mm-hmm. so i just think that we need to be more prepared and just stop because i'm saying why do they keep on saying a famine is coming a famine is coming have because you noticed that? I, well i heard um I think I was telling you, Dr. Nelson, they, where, where people are now doing this, and this was last week, I think I saw it, vertical farming, because there's not enough land, and I don't remember which state it was in, that would be helpful, but what they're doing is, they're, it is indoor farming, and they have these crops, it, it was um, different uh, things of lettuce, so they're growing them, because they grow quickly apparently, and then they just sell them to the local um, Whole Foods or whatever, but for them, it's keeping farming in the community and they're able, because it was a co-op. And so they're able to put the inputs back into their own community and they're able to exactly. employ people. So it's, it's a complete, it's a complete cycle. And there's the a lot of people in DC that do it. There are people in DC who are doing it. In fact, UDC has a college of urban sustainability called Causes and they have um, a machine in a box that mm-hmm. does aquaponics and it's much cheaper than buying it, um, let's say, in from a traditional source, because mm-hmm. the guy that actually invented it, he, I think he's from Russia or Poland or somewhere, but what he does, he doesn't sell you like a fancy whatever. All he sells you is the basic stuff, right? And mm-hmm. then he tells you, go out and buy so much feet of pipe, so you can buy from Lowe's or wherever, and he gives you the schematics to figure oh, out okay. how to build it. So you don't, so he doesn't like buy it and mark it up to 50, 100%. So that way, if his machine, let's say, costs 50000 mm-hmm. you're going to have to pay on 10000 So what you'll banish it for 150000 you can do from him for like 60000 because he's only selling you the real hardcore filter system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everything else he says, you can build yourself. There's no reason for him to try and get into the business of building, selling you pipe. Right, you know, right. Water, when right. you can do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And so Causes was trying to do some projects in Southeast Washington, D.C. I have not visited them in over four years. I'm not sure where things are. But again, if enough of us are hearing a famine is coming, and let's go back to the church, which is what we're talking about. We know that there's a soil problem. Mm-hmm. So the quality of the soil has a problem. We know a famine is coming. Now there's a whole Bible study about when Joseph was stolen into slavery, Okay, that sounds like us now. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and he was slave in Egypt. And then he was risen up by God to serve Potiphar. And then he served Pharaoh and he became the head of, of, of Pharaoh's stores, right? 
shouldn't the people in the church, when they hear a famine is coming, a famine is coming, should be say, okay, my God, is a scripture about that. Let me see. <laughs> they should be looking at that scripture and saying, okay, so who in here is the Joseph? All right, you work in the department of agriculture. Go and figure out what we need to be teaching the people in our church, right? And I'm saying those churches who are there preaching about these things and hallelujah every Sunday morning, should be listening to a feminist coming and try and use the Bible more creatively then and learn from the Bible and put the Bible into practice. Mm-hmm. And not mm-hmm. like do what Amala say, prepare us for life in the hereafter, but prepare us for a good life here so we can continue to preach the gospel. That's what I am saying. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that maybe to come back to the food, I think that might be the best place to start this conversation in reality if we really want to make something happen. Mm-hmm. Because that fear of food and starvation might be enough to force us in the EJ movement and the food security movement in the black community to come together, find some new, make some new friendships, right? And figure out how to expand the bigger baby steps happening in Chicago and Detroit and DC and Atlanta. People are trying out a few things, but we tend to see them as fringe elements, right? We need to make them to be, as Kiana says, our build up those cooperatives and those farmer co-ops and those marketing co-ops. And we need to invest in those examples of trying to be a difference and not yes. just wait until last minute when we don't have food to then say, it's been too late. So this is what we ought to be doing now, build up mm-hmm. those people right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So what we need to, what, what, what listeners can do is start thinking of one, their church, let's start there, or whatever. Uh, if, if you don't have a church and you have a community group with which you associate, because it, it can be done like that, and then you work backwards. Um, but find a farming cooperative or someone who is, the person may not, as Dr. Nelson said, they may not live in your community, but you have to find someone and have that conversation with them. And if you've listened to me before, you know I always advocate for having difficult conversations. And this may not be such a difficult difficult one because it's rooted in reality. It's rooted in the reality that our food supply is in trouble. And so before we get to a real place of it being in short supply, then we need to do the things that can help us. And we can start doing those things today by talking to a farmer. I have a friend that's a farmer. So, you know, you can start by trying to find a friend who's a farmer or try to befriend a farmer. So that, you know, you, you have a conversation with them and you find out what it is you need. How can I help your business grow? And because when their business grows, what we do is safeguard ourselves. So one of the things that we generally don't do is collaborate. We, we don't collaborate unless it's something drastic. And then we still look to see, well, oh, who's profiting from this? You know, it's not generally collaborating for the sake of helping someone to do better. And I advocate for that as well all the time because I find it's such a sweet journey when you're moving with someone who you can see their growth. And if it's mutually beneficial, then it makes it so much easier. So today on this World Environment Day, what we want to do is to implore you to give some thought to the fact that we have only one earth. This is the only one we have. And we ought to take care of it now. Yes, and that's been the rallying cry since I was a child. And I'm almost 50. We've always been talking about Save the Planet and all of that. Now we have a brand new Save Soil movement. 
um, that is headed by Marshall Montano and Sadhguru, and they're going around the world talking about how to save the soil. And I listen to them, and they're going back to those same um, early religions that Kian and Dr. Nelson are talking about, because the indigenous people valued the soil. They valued the water. You know, and we we have moved away from that because we've brought industrialization into the mix. And obviously to industrialize things, you've had to plant in places that were marshes before, as Dr. Nelson said. So there are things that we now need to go back to. We need to revisit so that we can get earth to be green again. Because I feel like we've departed from that. And we're seeing, we're seeing the fires, we're seeing the melting polar ice caps. Um, the, the droughts, we're seeing all those things coming, you know, and um, it's a little bit scary, but we still have time to make some changes. And so we need to advocate, talk to our government officials, but we also need to talk to each other and move from there. So Dr. Yeah. Nelson, I'll, I'll let you wrap up and I know we're going to wind down now. Yeah, okay. thank you so much for the opportunity. I just want to close by saying, you know, whether you are a Christian, a Rastafarian, a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Shango, South a Baptist, uh, what else, Candomblé, really, Ifa, Yoruba religion, I really don't care, right? Uh, we've got to integrate our spiritual intelligence back with our, our, our capital intelligence, right? Our economic intelligence and recognize that we're at a point of departure to either the way to self-destruction or the way to salvation, the way to redemption, right? And we have to make a choice between whether we want to be guardians of the earth and our future or gangsters, right? Eventually, gangsters might live high in the hog for a few days, months, years, but eventually they get shot down and left in the street to die, right? And so I think the, we can make that choice because we do hold a sacred trust and our ancestors and our ancestral memories, if we made the effort to excavate them, will really remind us that the earth does not belong to us as the Judeo-Christian philosophy has taught us, but actually we belong to the earth. We are part of the earth. We are co-creating the future earth as we go forward. So we have to think of ourselves as writing that sacred text that will be existing in the millennium of 5,000, right? When people are looking at the world in 5,000 and they look back at the archives and the new technology of this show, they'll say, whoa, back in the year 22, there was a show that came on and they talked about food security and Earth Covenant. And out of that was born a new movement, right? The Upstarts, United Planter Society to assure the rights to sustainability, right? And, and they were able to, when the famine hit, they were able to save 700,000 people from starvation because they were prepared. Mm -hmm. I think we can do this. And I'm mm -hmm. calling on us today to make the effort to be exactly that, be the change that we have been waiting for. Mm -hmm. Kian, I see your hand up. I'll give you the last word. Oh, sure, sure. Okay. Uh, I did have a question. I'd like to get uh, each of your ideas on this. I have a theory about moving in strategic silence as black people around the world. And um, I think anything that we do when we're trying to um, secure our own survival in any way for any reason, which we kind of always have to do, I think that it's best uh, for us to move in what I call strategic silence. And that is silence. Um, 
from the, the, the largest of our societies. And the reason that I say that is because here in the United States, there are so, 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 so many examples of the success of black people and then the strategic annihilation of those successes. And they come in many, mm -hmm. many, many forms, mm -hmm. all the way to there being a map of bombings across the United States. I think there's probably 35 that led all the way up from the, uh, uh, I think the earliest was the 1800s all the way to the 80s. Um, 35 that are counted bombings in the United States of black communities by the US military. Or not even just the proper military, but by somebody who received a phone call from the U.S. government, so and, and governmental bodies and associations, corporations, those elites, I guess you could say. So when I say move in strategic silence, I think we need to be speaking to our own. And sure, in terms of sharing, fine. If anybody wants to share outside of, outside of home, by all means. However, I do think that we've been infiltrated way too much, even by our own sometimes. So I, I'm very serious about the I'm gonna answer it, Kian. I'm gonna yes. jump in and we have to go. Yes. I'm gonna jump in as somebody who has been a change agent from inside the beast, right? Inside the belly of the beast. So as an indentured worker on a plantation, um, I've had to use what I call an Anansi approach. So strategic silence is a good term for it. So strategic silence mean, doesn't mean that you're necessarily silent. It means that you know how to compartmentalize to whom what is said. Yes. And you know when to say what you want to say. And therefore, you never let your right hand necessarily know what your left hand is doing and vice versa. Yes. So so it might be strategic communications and, 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 and as you say, strategic silence, so that because you do have to share what you want to say, your vision to some extent in order to get people to buy into it. Yes. But then you can actually share the exact way to achieve the vision. And you may not share the exact timing of where you are on the road to that vision, Correct. right? And you may not necessarily share who all the players are in the vision construction. Yeah, and you might have to let some people, area. right? Yeah. And you may have to let some people who are indentured servants and other plantations who may be very well allies remain invisible to all but a few people because if they were found out, they would lose their jobs or vice versa. So it's a lot of pieces have to go into action. And I do believe that my experience in leading the campaign for development equity in development with equity in the international financial institutions have given me a lot of, let's say, experience in maintaining that approach in order to survive a system that in my case was set out to lynch me. So on that note, I think we will end <laughs> and come back. But I do feel confident that this was a good conversation to start us off. And I'm very delighted to have met a new potential sister at arms. <laughs> yeah, we'll be talking offline and figuring out what strategy we're going to take to make some good trouble. <laughs> All right. Guys, you've been listening to a special show that we put on just for UN World Environment Day. And thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Marla Lynchon, and we'll talk again soon. Bye. Thanks so much. You're welcome.